It's good to be here and see everybody, see some old friends and uh, meet some new people too. Um, did you ever have a dog of a lifetime? You know, a, a dog that was better than any earlier dogs you had or maybe any later dogs you had and, and then it dies and you think, we'll never find a dog like that again. Uh, we actually had a cat of a lifetime. It used, to, it used to come to church, really. No, it, it came to free church. Yeah, Lucky was her name. She was a Christian. And uh, <laughs> baptizing her was a little tough, but uh, uh, she would follow us, follow the kids over on Sunday mornings. And uh, cat of a lifetime. Um, this is a church of a lifetime. For Kathy and me, we've tried three churches in Maine, and we've found one we've settled in, but it's not Free Christian Church. And I don't expect we'll ever find something like this again. So thank you, John, and all of you people. This is a blessed place. Um, and I got to hear the music twice. I, I will get to hear it hurt because it's not over yet. And uh, what, a, what a blessing. Uh, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in uh, the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And it's a little snapshot of uh, the Apostle Paul in, uh, in action, mid-first century A.D., and in the city of Athens in Greece. And uh, we'll see it. Um, my title is How to Change Your World and Why It is So Difficult. Every single one of us want to feel like we've left some little impact on the world, that maybe a little tiny bit better someone's life uh, for having lived, having been here. And uh, I, think all, I think everybody wants that. And here we're going to see how Paul did that. He changed his world. It wasn't easy, but he did. And uh, do you think you can change your world? Through Christ. Through Christ we can. Um, so we're going to look at it. We're going to look at this incident of Paul in Athens, mid-first century. And it's a little snapshot of him working, uh, interacting. We're going to see his motivation. What drove him to do what he did uh, in that first century AD to change the world? We're going to see how he worked. What was his method? How did he go about doing this? And then we're going to see his message. So all of you who are taking notes, and I said at the first service, no one's taking notes. But a few people, they are. Um, here's three pegs you can hang your thoughts on. His motivation, his method, and his message. So uh, before we start, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right, here's his motivation. And we're going to read the first verse in this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, <clears throat> the context is he's waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas. They are up in uh, Berea, which is about 200 miles away. And so he's, he was there. He had to send his messengers back to, to Berea to tell, Paul, to tell Silas and Timothy to come to Athens. So that took a couple of weeks. And now it's going to be a couple of weeks before they can get back because you had to walk in those days. And it's about uh, 200 miles away. And so he's here for a little while. What does he do? He's walking around the city of Athens. Paul was a city man. He had been raised in a city. He loved the city. 
I love that picture of Boston. Boston's my town. I was born there. From Cambridge, looking across at Charles. Wasn't that cool? I love to see the mountain scenes, but John said, you know, we're going to put cities up there too. And he's right. Because people live in cities. Paul went to Athens, and he wandered around, and he was greatly distressed. Verse 16, to see the city was full of idols. The word distressed is an interesting one. It comes exactly as it is in the New Testament right into English. It's the word parasism. You all know what that means. Look it up. It, it means to be so emotionally affected by something that you're actually physically feeling it. Have you ever seen or been so traumatized by something that you're shaking after an accident? I've seen that. People shaking physically. Or you ever seen somebody so angry that they're shaking? Now, I don't know if Paul was shaking, but he was greatly distressed. Parasism by what he saw. What did he see? Well, he saw this city full of pagan shrines and idols and all of the darkness associated with them because they're demonic. And it bothered him. He was greatly bothered by that. Uh, he wasn't mad at these people. They didn't know what they were doing. And so we don't get mad at people who don't know Christ. It's not their fault. No one has told them. They haven't understood. They haven't heard it yet. And, and so he wasn't angry with the people. He was tragically bothered by their situation, their lostness. And that's what drove him. That's what led him to do this. Are we bothered by people who are lost? Do we believe they're lost? People in our family who live their lives without any reference to Christ, people we work with, go to school with, neighbors, friends, all of that. Does it bother us when we know that they don't know the Lord? I hope it does, um, because the stakes are so high. The stakes are really, really high. Um, my son-in-law, Brian, I'm not going to call you out, don't worry, but um, he went to Babson College, um, and he, he'll know. Um, there's a globe on the campus of Babson College, a big stone globe, and uh, it was put there by the founder of Babson College, Roger Babson. Roger Babson was a financier in the 1920s, and even before that, and uh, the first half of the 20th century, he was a, one of the richest men in America, in, in, in Boston. And he, he predicted the fall, the crash of 1929, and he got out of the stock market. Don't you wish you were smart enough to know that? And he put his money in cash, and he preserved his fortune. He founded Babson College and some other things. He was a Christian, and he, he put this globe on the campus of Babson College, so that all of these bright, talented people who would leave there, my son-in-law is one of them, who would leave there, and he's going to kill me, um, <laughs> would leave, uh, as they'd leave there and make their fortune, uh, make their way in the world as, as, they, as they do, so, as so many bright, talented people do, that they would understand the right values. And so on this globe are these words from Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And, and, and that, that it should bother us that people's souls get lost. I didn't pick that just for you, Brian. I actually heard that uh, from a man who knew Roger Babson years ago. Um, but it's, it's stuck with me because people lose their souls 
and they don't want to, that should trouble us, and that should move us. And what do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we pray. We pray for people in our families, in our world, in our circle, who don't know the Lord. We pray for them. And I know uh, here, John and others have said, pray for six. You know, you, you can pray for more than that or less than that, but six you can keep in mind. Who is on your heart? Who do you want and hope and pray will come to Christ? Pray for those people. And uh, there's even a little device that church gives out called the prayer map. And uh, it's got some instructions on it. It's your world, where you play, your recreational world, where you work, where you live, and other. And you're in the center of that. And there are people in those spheres of environments, and you get to pray for them. So pray. That's how you start. And then Paul, that was his, his motivation. He was disturbed. And, but then he goes, and we see his methodology in, in verse 17. He says, so he reasoned in the synagogue. Paul was a Jew, so he went to the synagogue first uh, with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And then he went into the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. The marketplace is wherever you live. Uh, it, it, it might be market basket if you work there or spend a lot of time there, but most likely it's wherever you live, where you work, where you go to school, where your neighborhood is, where your friends are and your family. That's the marketplace. He went into the marketplace. Now, he could have just stayed there in the synagogue and hung out a, a sign. You know, that's what we do. We hang out signs. Bible study, 6 o'clock, all are welcome. Nobody would have gone. Why would they? The Jews might have, but nobody else would have. And so Paul goes to them, and he enters into their world. And, and this is his methodology. He goes into the Athenians' world, and he identifies with them. And that's our method. That's our methodology. That's, that's how we're to, to go. Um, the church for a long time, for about 100 years, not this church, well, this church, but other churches all across America, have operated on what some people call an attractional model, the belief that people would be attracted to the church. People would come here. And, and that was true. Uh, for that 100 years, people would be curious about the church or if you, if you had a good program or something for the kids or the, the, the sermons were good or the music. People would, from the, the world who didn't believe, would be drawn into the church. But it doesn't work anymore. Nobody comes to the church for, unless you invite them. People who have no background in, in Christianity at all, don't believe, they will come to this church, but they will come because you invited them. And they trust you and they, they like you. And you've built up that reservoir of relationship and all. But, but the the method is, and it's always been the way, is the church goes to the world. We don't expect the world to come to the church. And, and Pastor John exemplifies that, his involvement in this community, his fire chaplain, and so many other opportunities. I love the, 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 the uh, kind of stress on the, 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 the business climate here in uh, Andover and, uh, and John's involvement with that. Um, that's... That's what the church needs to do. Not the attractional model, but an incarnational, relational model. The incarnation. God comes in the flesh. That's what incarnation means in Jesus Christ. He comes to the world. We then take Christ in us because we believe he's living in us, and we go into our world with him and through relationships. The natural 
normal relationships, not trying to concoct these, but just natural, normal contacts we have with people, we get to take Jesus into that world. But, you know, there's some things that work against us in this. One is the culture. The culture has this secular, sacred divide. Uh, that actually goes back to the, to the Enlightenment, you know, in the 1700s. Look it up, okay? Uh, you can do that now. Not now, later. Um, but it goes back to the time of the Enlightenment. And it was a great German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who said uh, there is the, the noumenal and the phenomenal. The noumenal is the spirit world, the world of religion, even the world of politics, the world of ideas. You can't validate that. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a realm, there's knowledge in that realm, but you can't prove it. You can't test it. You can't scientifically demonstrate it. And so you, th that is set apart. And then there's the phenomenal, not because it's great, but because it's phenomena. That is the world that you can measure, you can understand, you can, you can test, you can validate. And so when we get together, what do we talk about? We talk about the weather. It's hot. No one's going to argue that. They may say, yeah, but it's, it's not the heat. It's the humidity, right? Yeah, it's still hot. Uh, but if you start talking in polite circles about Jesus, you're going, to look, you're going to just kill that conversation. That works against us. If you don't believe me, try it at Thanksgiving, okay? And we'll see how it works. Um, and, and even how we've structured church works against us. Because for so long, we've seen this as everything. And so the pastor works hard to get you to spend more time here, not less time, more time in the synagogue, so to speak, and you want the pastor to spend more time here because you want him to be available to you, you want him to visit you, you want him to help, you want him to lead this, start that, minister in this way. And so he has to spend all his time. Those things work against us. We've got a flawed model of the church. It's not attractional. It's incarnational and relational. And that's what Paul is doing. He sets such a wonderful example. Uh, some of you remember a few years ago, was it about four years ago, maybe you did the Life on the 110? Remember that ser series of sermons, Life on the 110? And I, I love that. I got to preach one of them. But it was the, the a logo of, uh, of the, you know, the highway, highway sign, interstate sign, and it was the 110. And what the 110 is, it's the 110 hours that everybody has for ministry. What are you talking about? You have 110 hours for ministry. How did you get that? Well, if you remember the series, look it up. I've got to stop saying that. Um, it's, we all have 168 hours a week, okay? That's what you have, what I have. You take 48 of that to sleep. You have to sleep. And then you take 10 of that to be here, to lead, to serve, to, to help in some way, to keep the home base strong because we've got to do that. And that leaves you with 110 hours. Everything else is ministry. That's the real model. The secular sacred divide is false. That's, that was concocted. Everything is sacred. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in it, the world and all the people, it's all God's. And so we get to work in God's parish. And so you go to work. In, at work, you try to be aware of Christ. Now, not continuously. You've got to get your job done. But periodically in the day, you just pause and you say, Lord, help me to be aware of you today. And 
And when you're aware of him in your place, in your marketplace, you found a ministry. Because then the people around you, you can pray for them. Again, maybe you can't talk about these things because of that secular sacred, but you can pray for them. And you can listen to them. And you can care for them. Or you wake up in the morning and, you know, you send your kids out the door and you pray for them. Pray with them. Send them out with a blessing. Uh, because they have to go into the marketplace. And you've got to fortify them. And everything becomes that. Um, your hobbies. We, we saw this uh, pretty uh, dramatically in our life recently. A few years ago, Kathy got me my dream car. You know, a lot of men and a lot of women have a dream car. It often was a car that you had, maybe you were in high school, maybe your first car, maybe the car you learned to drive on, maybe the car you wanted. Well, my brother and I had a, had a, a sports car when we were in high school. Uh, my father loaned us the money. We never paid him back. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to try now. He's gone, but I think I'll try to pay that back. And, uh, but I always wanted a car like that. So a few years ago, for my birthday, my darling wife bought me my dream car. Through that car, we've met some wonderful people. And uh, one couple in particular that we've really hit it off with, they, they've come here to church with us. They have come to church in Maine when I've been preaching. They, by their own admission, they said, we, you know, we really haven't been part of a church since childhood, you know, 50 years or more. And, uh, but, but, the, but they asked us questions, and we're talking to them. And uh, in, in just this past, by the way, when they came here, I was so blessed that so many people in the rotunda greeted them, went up on their own. And they felt so at home here. They said, if we, if, if we live near here, we, we might try this church. And uh, so thank you, church. Uh, but this, about three months ago, Bob is his name, had uh, open heart surgery and there were complications. And uh, they had to call a code blue. And I, I had to look that up. Uh, his wife said that. That's when you are in either uh, cardiac or respiratory arrest. You're about to die. And so everybody assigned to that code blue team in the hospital uh, rallies to that room and they... And he came through it. And we didn't know if he was going to live or die after that. And we were praying with his wife, Sandy. And I kind of went out on a limb. I don't recommend you do this. But I, I sense God saying, I'm not done with him yet. And so I said, Sandy, I don't think he's going to die. And he didn't. <laughs> um, and he's home, he's recovering. But we, they, have, uh, they have a car similar to ours, not, not as, nearly as good as ours. And, uh, and that was what it was. If it weren't for that car, we would never have met them. And I believe they are very, very close um, to finding Christ. When he was in the hospital, he had hallucinations, these, these uh, uh, awake nightmares, maybe from the medication, I don't know. But... They were horrible. They were terrifying. He said, Jack, I was praying the whole time. And I said, oh, wow, thank you. He said, Jack, I was praying to you. And uh, at first it took me back, but then I realized I was his priest. You know what a priest is? A priest is a go-between. A priest brings people to God and God to people. The word priest in Latin is pontifex. It means bridge builder. 
You get to be a bridge over which people walk to Christ, and Christ walks to them. You know, you are the priesthood. Luther called us the priesthood of all believers, Martin Luther, Protestant reformer. The Jews, uh, God said to, to Israel, you are a nation of priests, and they were. They brought the word. And, the, and then the New Testament writers pick that up and say, you are the church. You are the priesthood of believers. So you're priests. And I was that priest for Bob. He's, he's not quite there yet. I said, by the way, how, how, did I, how are my prayers? How did I do? He said, you did good. Whenever I prayed, I, I, I came out of the uh, hallucination. God, I said, Bob, I didn't do that. God did that. But you get the point. This is what Paul does. And Bob, a couple of years ago, said, Jack, tell me about your epiphany. I got to tell him my testimony. He trusted me enough. And you know, that's what the Athenians do to Paul. They trusted him enough because he had been in their world. So they said to him, may we know more what this new teaching is that you're presenting, verse 19. And they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they all got together to listen to him. And now we see his message. He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. They covered their bases, you know, they had lots of gods, they didn't want to leave anybody out, so they had, didn't, we don't know his name, but we'll, we'll include him. And then Paul gives what may be the best sermon introduction I've ever seen. John, I wish we could come up with these. He says, what you worship is unknown. Hold your breath. I'm going to tell you his name. I'm going to tell you who he is. And he proceeds to do that. We live in a very religious age. Even in this secular world, people are very religious. They are, they, their religion is the environment. And Christian, all Christians ought to be environmentalists. We ought to be the best environmentalists. But there are people for whom that's their religion. There are people who, for whom social justice, we all ought to be concerned about social injustice, but there are people for whom that's their religion. So they're religious. They just don't have a religion that's based on the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. So don't think they're not religious. And he goes to them and he says that. And listen to what he says. To, says some amazing things. He says, um, first of all, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. They knew that. They didn't really think God was in that little building. They didn't know who God was, but they sure didn't think he was in that. They had an inkling of how big the world was. Do you know that Pythagoras, Pythagoras' theorem, 500 years before Christ, he figured out that the earth was round 2,000 years before Columbus. Columbus knew it was round too. A couple hundred years later, another mathematician, Eratosthenes, he figured out that the earth was 25,000 miles in circumference. Guess what? It is. Aristotle. They were very concerned about motion. Everything moves. The leaves move. 
The clouds move, the stars move, the sun moves, the planets move, people move, creatures move. How did it all get started? Aristotle said there has to be an unmoved mover, and that was his word for God. So when Paul says, he doesn't live there, he created all this. They said, yeah, we think you're probably right. It was a big idea. They needed a big idea, something that was huge, that was all-encompassing, that would make sense of everything. And I think a lot of people are there today. And then he goes on and he says, um, not only that, um, but he is not served by human hands, verse 25, as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. What a great truth this is. You can't earn God's favor. You can't appease him. All of the religions of the world have one thing in common. They're all based on the idea that you have to earn the, the Almighty, however that's defined. You have to earn the Almighty's favor and blessing. If you want him to bless your life, you have to earn it. You have to sacrifice. You have to do this. You have to obey all these rules and regulations. Otherwise, you will not have his favor. Christianity alone says, give it up. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need anything. You know how big the universe is? You know this new space telescope a million miles above the Earth in orbit, the James Webb? It can see back in time about 12 and a half billion years. I, that's not far from when the Big Bang happened, I believe. You know, there, there may be a couple of, maybe about 500 million years or billion years uh, at the most from the very beginning of the universe, and they can see it. The, the pictures are already online. Incredible stuff. He made it all. And uh, how, he doesn't need us. He doesn't, but what he does is he gives to us. And so if you're needy, you know, if, you, if you're poor, if you're sick, if you're, if you're unworthy, if you're failing, if you're desperate, then good news, he can help you. You know, if we're proud and self-satisfied and all of that, then bad news, because we don't need him. We're not going to get his help. What a great message is this to tell people to, you know, as we make our way out into our marketplace on, on the 110, we, we listen to people. And, you know, if you listen to people, they will eventually get around to talking. The problem is I like to talk. I, I need to become a better listener. But if you listen, people will eventually tell you what's on their mind. It may take a while. It may take trust. Yesterday, we were in a conversation. We had a pond association meeting. Did I tell you I'm, the, I'm, the, uh, I'm on the dam committee? Isn't every committee a dam committee? But I really am on the dam committee. And there's some dam people. I mean, there's some people on the dam committee. And we're at a meeting of the pond association and a couple. Uh, they, they, they have the neighbors from hell on the pond. Ever had neighbors from Hades? I'll say that. And so I said, do you pray? You know, there, there are all kinds of options. They've, they've done all kinds of things. Nothing has changed in what these people are doing. I said, do you pray? And they said, we do. And I said, good. Let me pray. And uh, I said, a quick prayer. And uh, we get to do that. We get to do that. Because we know a God who will help them. I said, yeah, call, call on him. Don't hire a lawyer. Call on him. And he'll help you. We get to tell people that. How he'll, I don't know. But Paul says he will. And then not only that, but
But he's given us a destiny. He, in verse 26, he says, um, from one nation he made, one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth and determine the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. In, in other words, you're where you're meant to be. And if you're not, he'll tell you. If you listen, he'll tell you. Otherwise, you're where you're supposed to be. So this is so good. This is such good news because it keeps us from being whipsawed, wondering, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I living where I'm supposed to be living? Is this relationship, this marriage, is this where? And he says, yeah, you are, stay put. And if you're not, I'll tell you. What good news that is. Uh, Then he goes on. This is all his message. And he, he says that, not only do we have this destiny that God has us where we are, settles our restless hearts, but he says God wants a relationship with you. You see that in 27 and 28. God did this so we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. See, they thought God was, the gods were remote. The, gods, the Greek gods, they, didn't, they were distant. They didn't care about people. They were too busy fornicating and drinking and feasting and fighting. They didn't care about ordinary people. He says, no, this God does. He wants a relationship with you. He cares about you. And he's not far from you. And, and if you reach out, you can, you can, you can find him. And uh, he wants this personal relationship. And what a great message that is. He's not aloof from us. He wants us. And, and he's loving and he's patient and he's forgiving. We see that in, um, in verse uh, in 30. In the past, God overlooked our ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is, this is the message. This is the gospel and, uh, in, in, in summary form. And it's all through Jesus Christ. That's our message. And it's a great message. It's so, it's so helpful for people. We get to tell it um, when we get an opportunity. And then uh, what were his results? We see that at the very end, verse 32 and 33. Kind of mixed results. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered because, you know, they didn't believe that. Um, and you sneer when you, you know, you don't have anything to argue back. You don't have a good argument. You make fun of the person. That's what they did. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. We're not ready to buy yet, but we want to hear a little more. And at that point, he left the council, the area up, I guess, but some people became followers of Paul. He was their priest. And they believed. And two of them, Dionysius, who's the patron saint, by the way, of Athens, city of Athens. And, uh, and a woman named Damaris. We had a woman in the church uh, a few years ago, Damaris. You may have known her. A wonderful lady. Made the best flan. You remember? That was it, flan. Oops. Um, anyway, what are our results? Well, they'll be mixed, but we get to be a priest. Do you know you're a priest? Priestess, if you want to use that term. But we're priests. In the Old Testament, the priests wore these beautiful garments made of red and blue and purple to symbolize the beauty of God, the beauty of Christ. And they, they wore a gold medallion around their neck that said, Holiness unto God. God was their holy, their holiness. It wasn't themselves. It was through God. And, and they wore on their shoulders these, like, epaulets. They were made out of lapis lazuli stone and carved six names on each one of the 12 tribes of Israel to symbolize they were carrying the people of God 
on their shoulders, their burdens. And on their, their chest, they had a breastplate, also with six lapis lazuli on this side, six on the other, with the names also of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes, to symbolize the people who are on their hearts. What a great image that is. Here's what I want you to do, priests. Tomorrow morning, go, when you go to your closet, I want you to put on that robe to symbolize the beauty of Christ. Let him be seen in your lives, in your words, in your actions. And, uh, and then put that medallion, holiness unto God. It's not our holiness. Our holiness is Swiss cheese. It's full of holes. But his holiness, the holiness of Christ, wear that. And then on your shoulders, carry people's burdens. Well, let Christ carry them, not you. And, and on your heart, have the people you're praying for. And then uh, with that regalia, Go out on the 110 into your marketplace and live for Christ. Amen.